This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by the Socialism 2019 Conference, which is taking place this July 4th through 7th in Chicago. Socialism 2019 is the largest socialist conference in North America. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, and socialists fighting for the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, and organizing their workplaces and social movements. Participate in panels and discussions on black feminism, radical film, reparations, Palestinian liberation, and the socialist case for open borders. Speakers at Socialism 2019 include Naomi Klein, David Harvey, Astra Taylor, Amy Goodman, Anand Gopal, Francis Fox Piven, me, Dan Denver, and many more. Teacher strike leaders from the past year will come together at the conference with other teachers and union organizers to share experiences, inspire, and strategize. Socialism 2019 Conference is organized by Haymarket Books and Jacobin and is endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America. Visit socialismconference.org to register today. That's socialismconference.org. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm once again temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. In Spanish politics, the center-left socialist party has demolished the traditional conservative popular party and checked the risk of a major far-right surge. But meanwhile, the once very plausible-seeming dream of an insurgent radical left gaining power has faded and fast. The Socialist Party's recovery is a rare example of social democratic center-left parties holding on to power and relevance. Meanwhile, the left party Podemos has run out of steam, while left mayors in Barcelona and Madrid suffered painful losses. As the popular party has foundered, the far-right Vox Party has emerged as a real force in a country that had been considered a rare exception to the nationalist surge sweeping Europe. And Ciudadanos, a neoliberal nationalist party with a promiscuous and unclear political orientation, has seen yet more gains. Today, I'm discussing the Spanish situation with Carlos del Clos and Magda Bandera. This is the penultimate installment of our five-part series on European politics that has run over the last two weeks. Part one was an overview of the situation with Chris Bickerton and Jerome Rose. After that, we had Grace Blakely, Maya Goodfellow, and Richard Seymour on the UK. Then, the French situation with Daniel Obono and Sebastian Budgen. Next up, the last episode of the series— is an interview on Italian politics with David Broder and Marta Fana. Before we get this started, your support at patreon.com slash the dig is what makes this entire series on European politics and every single dig episode possible, and what makes it possible for us to put out all of our in-depth left-wing content for free, unpaywalled to all. Your contributions also built our new website, thedigradio.com, which has all of our episodes, the entire archive, searchable by guest and by topic, and coming soon, transcripts. We do also, as I mention all the time, have gifts for donors, left-wing book swag to send you in the mail, but more importantly, we'd simply like you to contribute what you can because this is a listener-supported operation. And so, if you're a listener who hasn't contributed yet, please do so if you can afford to now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Carlos Del Clos and Magda Bandera. Carlos Del Clos is a sociologist, a member of Roar Magazine's editorial collective, and an associate researcher at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs. Magda Bandera is the director of LaMarea.com, 
and has worked for La Vanguardia, El Periódico, and Publico. She specializes in politics, climate change, and gender. Carlos Del Close and Magda Mandera, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Spain had three big votes right after a big national election. There were the EU elections, like everywhere else, and then also local and regional elections. And all of them went pretty badly for the radical left. What happened? It's kind of hard to say. I, I would say that it depends a little bit on what level we're talking about. But the overall uh, factor is that Pedro Sánchez has quite successfully mobilized his social democratic bases, many of whom had voted for Podemos in 2015 and 2016 and 2014 in the European elections. And I think we're going to be studying for a little while why that happened. But kind of immediately the first two explanations and in this general sense of uh, that I can think of would be on the one hand, the conflict in Catalonia has the Pepe's response to it was terrible. The Pepe being the uh, right wing po- popular the, the, party. Yeah, the right wing party's response to it was authoritarian and awful. And Pessoa kind of represents a very firm bet for the unity of Spain without the same heavy hand necessarily that the popular party had. And that, for a lot of voters, I guess, was was relevant. On the other hand, you know, Pedro Sánchez has been governing governing Spain for 10 months now. The sky has not fallen. And I think this made a lot of the the Socialist Party's bases more comfortable, again, with, with that party. So I think a lot of them kind of returned home to the Socialist Party. And then on the other hand, the Catalan conflict was used by the far right to drum up support. And Pedro Sánchez very successfully, I think, drummed up the far right in a sense, or, or the threat of the far right to, to energize his bases and to, to mobilize abstentioners who were afraid of the possibility of, of a strong entry by Vox, the, 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 the neo-fascist party, that, that emerged in the, in the April elections. And this is just kind of my general take. I think we can get into the municipal candidacies, which I'm a little bit more knowledgeable about in, in, in a bit. But, but these, this is what I would say are the kind of the big movements. But perhaps Magda could get into more detail about this. I agree with you pretty a lot. But I, I also I think we can't talk about a radical left party uh, now. I, I think they lost this radicality very quickly. And because now they were really uh, supporting the, the Pedro Sánchez party, the, the PSOE, the socialists, and they didn't make a big difference. So the, the proposals were not that fresh as they used to be uh, just five years ago. And then um, they, they had such fights inside of the party that, that I think it was also very important. As people who were so illusioned with with Podemos, with this uh, um, uh, radical left, I think they lost the illusion because uh, there was not uh, the leadership they they expected and um, the the proposals were not not so clear. They had a very uh, interesting position in the Catalan conflict, I think, because they were the ones who, who, the only ones who tried to dialogue uh, between the two the two sides. But uh, in, in this radical situation we have now in, in Spain with this unity conflict in the Catalonia conflict, uh, the position was not so easy to, to explain. Yeah, and I would even add to that, um, I, I completely agree with Magda as well, that we have seen in surveys, for instance, that, that, the, that the positions uh, of, that are very hard pro-unity and hard pro-independence uh, in Catalonia, for instance, they, they, they haven't been moving that much. So both have kind of tried to draw voters from Podemos because it was in the middle of, of or, or their affiliates because they were kind of this kind of middle road. And so, of course, that's who they tried to get 
who they try to get votes from. So, so this debate was very much placed at the at the center of the political debate. But yes, I think that the infighting in Podemos was also a, an important factor that just kind of disillusioned a lot of people. And in a sense, what has happened in Spain, I think Jorge Tamam has put it very well in Jacobin when he said that power has returned to power. We've seen a, a normalization of the Spanish political system, even though it is transformed into a very fragmented and multi-party system. We've seen the return of, of just left versus right blocks and the nationalist bloc kind of having an important role. While the supposed radical left, which again, I agree with, with Magda that, that it has certainly lost a lot of its radicality, and it has lost a lot of its radicality because they have taken on the traditional role of Izquierda Unida. Uh, Podemos is now an enlarged Izquierda Unida, or at least that's how they're perceived in the current... United left. The Izquierda Unida, yes, the United left. They're now perceived as this very traditional former communist party in, in the current... Spanish political system. I'd like you both to to explain a little bit about those personal conflicts which have erupted within Podemos and also complaints about the party's resistance to being really open and democratically open to the grassroots. They lost that very quickly. Uh, they had these big assemblies where and, and something that they called circles. No, that uh, after Indignados movement, the, the 15 May movement. I don't know how you say in English. There was this this need and this this illusion of of meeting people in in neighborhoods or in different places and just make these democratic assemblies. No, and then the Podemos, as they began as a party, uh, they also tried to reproduce uh, this with these called uh, circles, but they never got power. They they lost the power very quickly, and then they had really the the same organization as a normal party. And very, very, with a hierarchy, hierarchy, I don't know. There was really very, very the boss and the others, no? And, and then very quickly they had two two sides, no? This Errejon, who is very, very similar to in the positions with with Zoe, with the Pedro Sanchez party. And then it a bit radical, and even in in the, in the way he looks, it was Pablo Iglesias and, and the other side. But... The thing is that I, it, it was then the personal relationship between them that made something, that, that everything broke too quickly. I, they were uh, friends and they, they were too political, uh, I don't know how to say, they, they liked too much this, uh, how do you call this, Juego uh, de Tronos? Carlos, help me. Uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah, they the whole time. The whole time, yeah, making so experiments. <laughs> they experimented too much, I think. No, and, and and then they became very artificial. Then this democracy that that they promised to to the people participating in the parties, I think it never it, it was never reality. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Podemos developed a party structure that was very dependent on personalities, on charismatic personalities. And insofar as they did not develop proper internal democratic channels, any time there was internal conflict, it would be resolved by some major face, or it would be catalyzed by some major face making public statements against the grain of, of Pablo Iglesias or who, whoever else. And so, you know, this, this form of, of internal competition within a political party, I think, is one that tends towards a lot of desertions, which is precisely what we saw with the formation of Errejón's party, Mas Madrid. But, but we've seen other examples as well. And so I think that that model of politics is, is, it was a problem. And one of the reasons that it's a problem is because, you know, Podemos has this left populist kind of discourse, but left populism doesn't really work if you don't actually trust the people. And and if you don't trust the people that make up part of your political project, if you don't trust your constituency, um, and when you don't develop meaningful, robust internal democratic mechanisms and in a, in a, in a meaningful democratic culture, I think you really run the risk of discrediting a lot of your your populist discourse. Sanchez has been in government, I believe, for in power for a little under a year. 
governing not in coalition with Podemos, but with their support and the support of separatist parties. How, how did that play out before the recent national elections? And did Podemos's decision to back the socialists, as, as I think you've suggested, Magda, did it ultimately allow Sanchez to, to co-opt, subordinate and undermine Podemos? They have to, because it would be very difficult to explain that they don't give him support in this moment when you, when we have this radical uh, right uh, so so near. No, but the thing is that we didn't have uh, a coalition. Uh, Pedro Sanchez was alone. Only yeah, he negotiated sometimes some things like the uh, how do we call it the salary, uh, the minimum. How do you say, Carlos? This the average. That's, uh, the, the uh, yeah, the, the minimum wage. Uh, yeah, exactly. But uh, no, it was more propaganda from from the right that he had the support of the of the independentist uh, parties. They, for instance, he couldn't uh, have the presupuestos. How how do we say? Uh, yeah, exactly. So he, he that's why he had to to have a new election. Election. No, they were not that aggressive, but he, he was pretty alone. And now uh, Podemos, I think they they just have to support him to back him somehow because uh, it would be it would be very difficult to explain that they don't do it. Carlos, well, it's worth it's worth repeating that that these elections were called precisely because the secessionists from Catalonia decided not to back the budget. However, it can also be said that it, they were called because Pedro Sanchez was not willing to negotiate with them, right? So it kind of takes two to two to tango and two to stop sometimes. So um, so in this case, it, it, I think this did hurt Podemos. I mean, it certainly hurt Podemos because at the time when when this, this pact was made to put Sanchez in the government, it was between Podemos and the nationalist and separatist parties. At that time, Podemos had about 70 seats. And now, and after these elections, they have just over 40. So I think it's quite clear that the internal conflicts, their support for the secessionists, and Pedro Sanchez's kind of ability to, to tack left, or at least kind of sound like he is tacking left, uh, which doesn't speak well for what, we're, what we expect from the socialist, socialist Party in Spain. I think all of these factors kind of played a major role in, in, in shaping this. And now Pedro Sanchez has the option of ignoring the secessionist parties in Catalonia and still having a, a government. Given that Podemos has withered, it was hoping not that long ago to sobrepasar, to overtake the socialists as the, the largest party left of center. Um, and now they've been overtaken by Ciudadanos and are now the fourth largest party rather than the third largest party in Spain. Is it possible that given that Podemos has withered while pacting with the socialists, that it could be better for Podemos, maybe not better for the Spanish people in the short term, but better for Podemos if Sanchez pacts with Ciudadanos? If Sanchez pacts with Ciudadanos, the system, the the company's economical power will be very quiet. He will have uh, less problems than if he pacts with Podemos. But he will have a very big problem with the bas- the basis of the party. Because first day as he won uh, the election, the general election, the, he had lots of people there celebrating and they will say in very clear, con Rivera no, not with Rivera, with the leader of Ciudadanos. He got very good options. First, when he fought for the power in, the, in his party, because he was more left than this Susana Diaz at, at that moment, no? and well, the, the leader of the Andalusian party who also ran to to leader the the social party in, in whole Spain. And later, because he was making some... And, and just to clarify, he was basically kicked out of power in the socialist party in his comeback was sort of seen as not only miraculous, but sort of a left pushing the socialist back in a more leftward yeah. direction as well. Exactly. He appeared in a very important uh, program on TV saying that the economical power uh, pressed him uh, to avoid this pact with Podemos. And, and he really sounded very radical, Pedro Sanchez. No, He forgot that later. But still, uh, his uh, campaign, he played the, the, um, 
quiet left uh, leader, no? Saying, for instance, one of the most important thing was that with the uh, with the salaries, no? And and that was, yeah, the, this important uh, social uh, measure. He he was trying to appear like a leader for the moderate left. Now, if he changed too much, it would be difficult for him, I think. But uh, Podemos, I think they, they, nobody will talk about Sorpaso in Podemos for a very, very, very long time because they really have no no chance at all. They forgot that. It was, I think, I mean, everyone trying to make a Sorpaso in Spain, like Ciudadanos with the Partido Popular, as Carlos said, has uh, no success at all. No, I, I don't see at all that, that uh, Pedro Sanchez wants only that uh, Podemos vote for him, but no coalition at all. Carlos? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think right now there's what what has made Pedro Sanchez popular is not that he was center left. It's that he disputed the center of the left, if that makes any sense. That is to say, if there's a far left or whatever and a center left, he went for somewhere between those two things. And he disputed that ground with with Podemos. And so if he forms a coalition with Ciudadanos, he sabotages his own appeal. So, I I mean, I think Magda's spot on here. It was precisely the Socialist Party's practice of pacting with the right-wing populist party prior to Sanchez that had led to the Socialist Party really being discredited and losing a lot of support and helping Podemos emerge, right? And so if he does pact with Ciudadanos, is that is that good for Podemos and in, in that it would allow Podemos to to then recapture and monopolize the left space without fear of being co-opted? It would be good for Podemos if Podemos uh, was uh, had a good uh, health. But now they are really <laughs> yeah. kaput. Uh, they have a very big problem. I don't know what's going to happen in Podemos. But if they didn't have this uh, message they have now, it would be really that what people said on, on the squares when they demonstrated that uh, Partido Socialista and Partido Popular were the same thing, no? Well, they use uh, very bad words. Not, they don't say it, uh, the same thing, but some other insults, I think. And We called uh, them the same shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they are la misma mierda. That's what uh, the Partido Socialista tried to to uh, say. It was not true that they made a, a very big difference. If they make this kind of coalition, it would be very difficult for them. But the, the problem is that I think Podemos, if you see the leaders, I have been uh, seeing these days in Madrid, uh, some of them, they are really mm, in a shock. I don't know what a shock because everybody recognizes that they admit that uh, they could suspect what was going to happen, but they are really in a very bad, bad situation, depressed, shocked, um, uh, with yeah, fighting. It's it's really a bit dramatic now. I, I want to switch gears a little, though all of these topics are pretty deeply related to one another, and, and talk about Barcelona, where left-wing mayor Ada Calau, one of my favorite politicians on earth, lost. Explain Calau and the project of her municipalist platform, Barcelona in Comú, and why she lost. Is, is it fair to say that the explanation's rather straightforward, that that Catalonia, the national question, has just become a, a, a huge obstacle to left politics, not in Catalonia and everywhere in Spain? So Barcelona in Comú is a municipalist platform that was spurred by Ada Colau, who was kind of the most visible uh, face of Spain's movement for the right to housing and, and the platform, the mortgage victims platform, which is a, an incredible exercise in mutual aid and solidarity and direct action and civil disobedience uh, for housing, blocking evictions, occupying bank-owned banks and giving them to, the, to evicted families and so on. So she led this movement, uh, at least publicly. And eventually kind of, you know, channeled that, the legitimacy she built there into a, a popular candidacy for the left in, in, in Barcelona. This platform won the elections in, in May of 2015. Four years later, they lost one seat. Um, they actually have the same number of seats as the party that, quote unquote, won the local elections by a handful of votes. And and so 
in a sense, yes, the national question did play a major role here. But I don't think that this... It was a minute shift in the actual vote, is what you're saying. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, if you think... The way I describe it is this. It was not a catastrophic result for the left in Barcelona. 28 of the 41 seats are in the hands of the left or of the center-left. The pro-independence center-left, Esquerra Republicana, has 10 seats. Barcelona en Comú has 10 seats. The Socialist Party has eight seats. So the, the sad part is that the radical left group got is out of the out of city hall they lost their three seats because they didn't break the five percent barrier so what happened how did they lose that seat it's very clear it seems very clear at least from from the maps we've seen of how the votes went in each district that barcelona and Comú lost their key votes in the working class neighborhoods of barcelona which are not pro-independence they were built by uh, "Quote unquote migrant workers from the rest of Spain and their traditional socialist base voters, right? That is correct. And so there, despite uh, the strong emphasis on these neighborhoods, not just in terms of public policy and and social investment that Barcelona and Comú exercised over the last four years, but by the political centrality that they gave them in 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 sort of the public performance of their campaign, despite all of that." Many voters there, key voters, went back to the Socialist Party, and this was pre- predominantly in like the most most poverty-stricken neighborhoods in in these districts. So, why? I mean, if we can't attribute it to the actual policies, um, then all that's really left is is the, the the sort of the national question, and I think you know that's that's where they lost a, a critical amount of votes. Magda. Yeah, I agree. I think yeah, many people who voted for Barcelona and Comú, but also in in the general election, uh, went now to the Socialist Party. They didn't. Uh, yeah, first this what what Carlos said about these popular neighborhoods that happened also in in Madrid. I think Ada Colau and and Manuela Carmena, the two mayors, thought too much in the center of the cities and not so much at the popular and the periphery. And these people with this Catalan conflict, um, I think they voted for the people in between. The Socialist Party was more moderated, more moderate, and they didn't. Uh, the position of Adacolau was very complicated to understand for all these people who came from the immigration to Catalonia and they, they feel Spanish and Catalan because they were, there is this war of symbols and there is, it's very complicated to, to be in the middle and try to be like this. No? And I think that that was bad for, for Ada Colau. Uh, too much, uh, she forgot to be the popular thing and the position in the Catalan conflict was not so clear for many. And that position, if I, if I have it right, was that she was, not in favor of independence, but was in favor of Catalan's right to self-determination? No, I think the majority of the population in Catalonia want to vote. We want a referendum. But even now that the independentist party is uh, got the, the better result ever in the European election, uh, almost 50%, but I think that was something like to support the, the President Puigdemont in Brussels and to make that the conflict uh, has a presence in the European institutions. They never got the 50%. No? But it's very difficult to make you understand when you are not in Catalonia that we want to vote, even if we want to vote no to the independence. No? And, and that's uh, what Ada Colau always defended. And just to clarify, Puigdemont was the leader of Catalonia who is, I think, still facing pretty serious criminal charges? Yes. No, yes. I, I, I will just add that um, Ada Colau's position was further complicated by the fact that when they asked her in the, I believe it was the 2015 consultation that they did, uh, they asked, you know, what, what her position was. And she said something like, my position is yes, you know, on, on independence to force Spain to make a decision and no, 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 But of course, like when she said that to the, even is, that's just very hard to convince people that you're not actually in favor of independence when in the past you've said, oh, I'm not, but I would vote yes. Yeah. Right. I agree. I agree. It was exactly like this. Yeah. 
And just for people who haven't been to to Barcelona or Catalonia, it's um, just in, an incredibly divisive issue that is just visibly present in the physical landscape in terms of flags. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's also, it's not just an issue of national sentiment. I mean, there's an element where it is, there's an aspect of it that is performed as a class conflict. That there is certainly on the part of Catalans of Spanish descent, there's, you know, they have historically been the working class or, or overrepresented among the working class, class, let's say. And so a lot of the time, you know, people might feel that the Catalan nationalism is a form of, of like racism or, or something like it, right. Or classism. And that, so it's, it's tinged with these, these aspects of, of, of class politics very much in the line of this idea of an ethno-class society or whatever. And so that, that further complicates things because it's based on a lot of old myths or, or old dynamics. And today the situation is a little bit, a bit different, but social class certainly plays a part in the imaginations of of the different positions on Catalan independence. And the political expressions of independence are also pretty variable, independence politics, because you have conservative independence party, pro-independence parties, and you have radical anti-capitalist pro-independence parties and everything in between. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very complicated because Puigdemont, who was the president and who is who comes from a, a conservative party, Convergencia, now is the more radical. It's more like the radical left from La Coupe. Uh, and the Esquerra Republicana, who used to be, they were always for independence and Republicans, are the ones who are now changing uh, the, the the yeah the the position and want more dialogue and and all this no, but it's very funny for for us Catalans uh, to see these these roles that these people who were ruling the country for decades because uh, we had the Conservative Party in in, in ruling uh, Catalonia they are really the ones who just talk about making the Republica and and yeah and going on with. They are really very, very radical. So it's it's a kind of, of fun if it was not dr- dramatic because we have all these people in prison. And that's that's also the thing, having these politicians in prison, that makes that the debate is really um, very toxic. You can't talk properly about anything because there is always this, no? They're saying, so long as we have these people in prison, we just can't make them. Yeah, it, it's horrible. I've, I've actually... I think the election results, I mean, I've been saying this for about seven years now. I said that, I mean, there's a lot of radical posturing and there's a very serious consequences in in the debate over Catalan independence. But what I've said for a long time is that it's actually a very stabilizing debate because it actually favors establishment parties. It has it has not done very many good things for Convergencia y Unión, the Christian Democrats, let's say, that were kind of that were pro-Catalan independence, but it has transformed Esquerra Republicana into a, res- a vehicle for a lot of those vo- voters. But what it has really done is stifled the rise of a project like Podemos or a project like Comuns. I mean, it, it was really it, it has had that effect in in a lot of ways, and not just in Barcelona, but but throughout. Spain in, in in different but interrelated ways. Yes, because it because it the, the reason I say it's stabilizing is because it, it forces people into hardened positions about a very old debate in Spain and a very old unresolved conflict. Rather than inaugurating new ones, it it amplifies existing ones. Old and, bottles conducive to old wine. Exactly. 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 But that said, you know, at, at the same time. You know, again, Barcelona has 28 left-wing seats out of 41 right now. Not um, bad. That's not bad if if they can somehow see eye to eye. But I mean, that's the thing: is can Barcelona be a place where these you know politics can surpass uh, these these issues? You know, and 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 the and the problem exactly as Magda pointed out is is that they've judicialized politics you know, with the help of the Socialist Party. But but the Partido Popular judicialized politics, and it's not a situation 
of uh, it's not a normal situation in Spain right now because there are political prisoners, and I I completely understand why why some people wouldn't wouldn't want to debate. The more he is talking, the more depressed I feel because I think nobody can understand. <laughs> This this mess we have in Spain, in Catalonia, or whatever. It's really I think we we should use uh, uh, graphics or something because it's really <laughs> difficult to understand. Yeah, so that is the precisely the purpose of this podcast we're doing. Before we move on from Barcelona, what was Calau's government? What did they What did they accomplish? What did they accomplish? They've com- accomplished very concrete things, but I but I say that they're kind of they are achievements of of governance. So. What they've done is, for instance, raise social spending substantially uh, during a period when you know the austerity framework was so dominant, and they said that we couldn't increase social spending to deal with social problems. They did it um, without breaking the bank. You know, uh, they they passed laws to that would require new construction to include a sizable chunk of affordable of affordable housing, which is a big deal with the current. Rent crisis, rental crisis that's going on in in Spain and in global cities everywhere. They, yeah, they started a public electric company that can challenge Spain's energy cartels, which is a massive, massive issue. They created municipal programs to accommodate refugees and asylum seekers that are systematically ignored and neglected by the state program, and have successfully pressured the central state to. Um, to step it up and meet its the, the commitments that it's been uh, negligent of for so long in terms of re- refugees and asylum seekers. So so they've they've had some uh, you know they've inaugurated more bike lanes and things like this. And so they've they've done a lot of small big things. But the problem is that these are achievements of governance. Uh, what they were promising was to take on financial capitalism. Uh, they promised to, you know, take on patriarchy. They promised to to take on climate change and the scale mass tourism. Yeah, mass tourism, of course. Yeah, they limited, uh, you know, illegal tourist flats and things like this. They took on Airbnb. They took. They tried to take on Uber. I mean, they've they fought a lot of fights and they've they've made, they've had some modest achievements. But the thing is, when your discourse and your hype was so much. The gap between the two is a lot of disillusionment, even if you did an okay job, you know? It fell quite a bit short of utopia. Yeah, certainly short of utopia. And also in a utopia, you don't send police to repress uh, mostly African street vendors, you know? So things like that do a lot to discredit. Um, And so when they would discuss these achievements, you know, these are people that come from activist movements and from the radical left. So they would often take a defensive tone and be like, well, you know, this is just what's possible with the institutions that we have, which is true and it's honest, but it's not mobilizing, you know. So I think that might have played some role, and I, I don't pretend to have any kind of answers on how to deal with that, certainly. But, but yeah, Magda. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That was the problem. That the promises were so high, but. Uh, she didn't have it easy at all because to do all these things, to begin all these fights all at the same time against all the opposition was really wild. So yeah. there was no, no, it was, uh, I, it's difficult to see such an opposition as she, as she had. No? And then with this uh, Catalan conflict again. No? So, yeah, but the result was not bad at all. No, really, no, it was pretty, pretty good. Uh, the expectations were, yeah, were not that good. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Next Left, a new podcast from The Nation magazine. We are witnessing an explosion of progressive political energy. New candidates are running for public office high and low, and they're winning. Stay up to date and informed about these politicians who are striving to change our country for the better. Every Tuesday, Next Left host and the nation's national affairs correspondent, John Nichols, will interview these insurgent politicians who aim to reshape our nation's politics by bringing bold, progressive policies to their cities, counties, states, 
and to DC. Don't miss this week's interview with Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, the first Palestinian-American woman in Congress, as she talks about Detroit's history in the civil rights movement, social security, and the current administration's corrupt pay-to-play politics. It's a great compliment to my recent interview with Tlaib here on The Dig. Next Left, the political podcast that gets personal. Download and subscribe to Next Left wherever you get your podcasts. Let's turn to to Madrid, where another left-wing mayor, Manuela Carmena, lost the election, sort of, that's currently, I think, in flux last time I saw. But her her municipalist platform came in behind the combined vote of the right-wing popular party, the right neoliberal, whoever they are, Ciudadanos, and the far-right Vox, they they got a larger combined vote. What happened and is happening in Madrid? In Madrid, yeah, everybody's trying to to yeah to say what happened there. No, they, they, everybody, everybody, now everybody who voted for Carmena with that illusion four years ago uh, is uh, under a shock or something like that. I think the big problem was all these people who were not very experienced on on having a government. They made a great campaign many activists, but when they they were at the power, they didn't know exactly how to rule that. And again, we had a lot of fights. That's traditional in Spain, that the left is always fighting. In, and now the right also does that, but when they have to negotiate, they negotiate very well. But the left goes on with, this, with these traumas. And then I think, yeah, they had a big division. And so there was also this deal there was a platform, and they were Izquierda Unida, this United Left, and then this uh, citizen platform, and that it was more uh, with Podemos, Ahora Madrid. It, it was really... Uh, and, so, and so, in other words, this Podemos fight between Erejón and uh, um, Iglesias played out within the, the election. Yeah, a lot, because uh, it was a surprise that suddenly Erejón said that he made a kind of platform, not a party yet, but it will be, with Carmena, and he didn't uh, say to Paulo Iglesias uh, they, wanna, they, they were negotiating all this. No, that was a shock, and that was two months before the election. That was really too, too quickly. And then what happened is that the whole time, Carmena was governing, uh, was mm, yeah taking care of the center. She made something that is really great. That is the project of protecting the center from from cars, from traffic with this uh, uh, Madrid Central, and that was really very good and made a big change in in the city. But it was only for the center and the neighborhoods. They voted for Carmena in the south of Madrid. They really felt very um, yeah. They were not loved by Carmena. And they didn't vote for her. They they stayed at home. Probably they didn't vote for for the right, but they didn't vote. No. And there was this conflict at the very last moment appeared uh, uh, this Madrid in pie. Uh, how would you say, Carlos? Madrid uh, on the march. Yeah. yeah. And then there was this confusion, and then they were saying we have to. Uh, it was that that made a lot of harm to to Carmena. Yeah, I would I would add. Just kind of as a reflection on on Madrid in particular, that that even though it's you know it tends to be painted in the same process as Barcelona and Comú and all of this, I mean, there there are some notable differences, which is that Badacolao was a was an activist, and 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 Barcelona has a very thick social fabric of of activism and and neighborhood associations and all of this that kind of came together in that candidacy or in the coup. In Madrid, Anuela Carmena was kind of the head of this popular project that kind of tried to create a confluency between different interests, uh, left-wing interests in, in Madrid. But this charismatic or personality-driven approach really backfired for them in Madrid because Carmena kind of uh, was very, very quick to separate herself from the activist bases. Like, she did not really view them as important within the candidacy, within the party, and certainly not within the government. And, you know, there was this idea that she was constantly, you know, purging different voices uh, over time so that eventually uh, some of the people from that party broke off and and started their own thing, which was Madrid en Pie, uh, Madrid on the March. 
which was very, you know, very much centered around a lot of the notable activists and um, kind of social movement thinkers and personalities that that helped prop up the original Aura Madrid, Madrid project. Well, these were the ones that felt the most burnt. But of course, the big thing with, uh, for them was this big urban regeneration pro project called Operación Ch Chamartín, yeah. which was a huge urban development project that that really upset the the more mobilized bases of that party. So when you know when they break off, you know maybe and those... this is a big like neoliberal luxury gentrification development project, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to to put it lightly, it's 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 just a bad idea, and you know, that's a key move because one of the things that people are saying uh, about the role of NPA is that it didn't have that big of an, of an effect because when you add their votes to Carmenas, they still didn't beat the right, right? Um, that's a kind of simplistic way to look at it, though. Yes, right? it is very simplistic because the thing is, yeah, sure. Let's think about it in terms of uh, let's think about it in management terms here. If you take this human capital uh, that is that was so responsible for making your very dynamic and very innovative communications campaign that really made you meet your targets in 2015 and you really <laughs> upset them and they leave, you know, <laughs> then then it's not so much the people that they take with them. It's the what their effect could have been on the campaign mobilization itself. The uh, old hole. The old hole was more than the sum of its current disaggregated, alienated, sectarianized parts. Exactly. So, and you know, and and these are candidacies that need, or at least were built on a lot of hype. So, if you get rid of the hype, you're going to have some kind of problem. If you have public enemy without flavor, flav, right? Like, <laughs> it's just very, it's a very somber affair. Uh, and it's very good music, and it's great. But, you know, play with play, that's a lot. Right? <laughs> and you also mentioned that we didn't really address it, that, that Kalao might be able to retain her office because of these sorts of coalition politics. It is not unlikely. I'll put it that way. Wow. Um, yeah, but this was all, both were reported in at least the media I was reading. You know, they, they were both reported as losses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is. Again, the results aren't that bad uh, for 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 a lot of the municipalist candidacies. I mean, it, it, the 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 point that I keep making is, uh, you know, to folks when I talked about it is is we're kind of fetishizing governance here. Okay, so you lost some elections. Does that mean the whole project's over? You have the same number of seats as the people that are going to replace you, ostensibly. You know, in the worst case scenario. So it's not really crisis time. It's just sometimes in a democracy, like parties switch, right? And maybe it's a good time to get back in touch with your base and figure out, you know. Hey, what did we learn over these last four years? And 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 you know what? How can we how can we strengthen the streets and and feed that? You know, and this, these kinds of questions. I, I think that that there's nothing inherently bad in that. But at the same time, part of what has I think driven Soa's resurgence, and I don't know if Magda m might agree or not with me on this, but part of the resurgence of Besoe has been dependent on the resurgence of left-right blocks in Spain, which is something that Podemos. Uh, and the 15M movement kind of put into question, not so much this idea. Well, they they had this phrase of of like the 15M. You know, they said we're not left, we're not right, we're the bottom going for the top, and for a moment destabilized the old coordinates of the of the political system. Now those are the the coordinates appear to be stabilizing around a politics of blocks, but at the same time, I like to call Spain the land of no majority because. We're not going to see absolute majorities anymore in Spain, or at least maybe I'm speaking too soon, but it doesn't seem that way because there are so many political parties now in the in the government, and the system was not designed to do this in in Spain. It was, it was actually designed to do, to handle to create a, a, the opposite situation. So, so I think everybody is kind of in new terrain here, especially the new uh, municipalist parties, because they don't know what the electoral math looks like. Yeah, Magda, do you, do you agree with that, that even though Podemos seems to have run out of momentum in a pretty serious way, that, that this political moment that gave birth to, birth to Podemos and Ciudadanos, that it, that it has transformed politics permanently in the sense that there's now this incredible fragmentation that's very new for Spain? 
Yes, I agree. But the only thing is that uh, now Podemos, as, as Carlos said at the beginning, uh, is more like the position of uh, Izquierda Unida United Left, that it's just yeah. uh, kind of a small party. And Ciudadanos is not uh, big yet, though they, they increased a lot. So, but there is, we were used to have these majorities and people don't accept it at all. When you see what happens in Germany, that's normal to have these coalitions with colors and they make these jokes about that they are like, like flags, no? The, the Jamaican flag uh, party or things like that, no? Because they combine this, this green and with, with black and everything. We, we don't accept it somehow. And they will have two. It's uh, the thing in Barcelona, for instance, is really uh, very strange. If you have these uh, percentages, 10, 10, and 8, uh, another Colau has lost for just um, a couple of, of votes. It's, it's nothing. She would be the one who has options to make a coalition with others. It should be logical, but it's a kind of, I don't know, we, we resist to accept that, that uh, that's democracy, that is the one who can and make a government. I don't know. We will accept it because there's no, no so there's no more options. But something we haven't talked about in detail that we need to cover before we finish up is the rise of Vox, a far right party in a country that until recently didn't have one, at least of this 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 new far right nationalist anti-immigrant populist brand that's been sweeping Europe. Explain Vox, how it is this sort of pieces together this monstrous grab bag of Franco nostalgic far right extremists fulminating against separatism, migration, cultural Marxism, feminism, gay people, etc. Why they emerged when they did and what their social and class bases are. Because Spain was supposed to be this grand exception. And it was when we spoke in Barcelona last May, Carlos. Well, we always were very proud of us saying that uh, we didn't have these fascists uh, uh, with us, these parties, but we always had. They were in the Partido Popular. Uh, when when you really uh, analyze the, the votes, well, I think we even have uh, less than we thought, because now the, this box, this new party, it's only new party, but it's not new. They came and, and, and the leader, uh, Santiago Bascal, was and the Partido Popular for, for many years. So um, it's not new. We, all, we just didn't want to accept it. We had what we call soci sociological franquism, or, well, uh, yes. franquismo sociologico. And these roots were here. Uh, it's only that for some reason, they had some complex. They couldn't uh, show the flags and, and even uh, pre-democratic flags like they sometimes do now. But when when we had all these flags, these Catalan flags, they felt like yeah, now we have to to respond somehow. No, and and it it all has begun in a way I don't know, uh, very very yeah, slowly. But not, I don't know if, if you agree, uh, Carlos, but they are really less than, than many of us thought. They are fewer than, than, than the initial fears around them uh, suggested, but there's still 24 seats in the parliament, which is a lot. If I had to describe Vox, uh, which I do, I would say <laughs> Vox is 1492. 1492 was the year that the... That three things happened. Uh, basically, that's where it's modern, sort of modern Spain started. So that was, uh, it was when they, it was the reconquest, right? It was when that culminated and they kicked the um, Islamic Spain was expelled from, from Spain. Uh, then the Catholic kings got married and that united Spain under a national Catholic project. project. Uh, then they promptly colonized uh, the Americas and, you know, enacted genocide all over the continent. And then they, at home, they had the Spanish Inquisition. So all of these things happened in 1492, and all of these things are the imaginary, the imagination of Vox. Um, that is what they basically, yeah, it's, it's the most gruesome thing you can imagine. And it's, it's, it's basically what they, what they kind of appeal to. They say that, you know, hey, who cares? This is our way of being irreverent and all of this. Now, their class basis is even more skewed towards the upper classes than than the far right elsewhere, uh, much more. Um, so 
So it's not, this is not a working, white working class kind of story. Uh, Vox is, is the party, is the fascist party of a very tacky, very nostalgic, very misogynistic, very homophobic, very racist elite. And I really think actually that they, you know, their rise is there also to kind of uh, stabilize the, the, the political system. And, to, and, you know, Pedro Sanchez was the smartest one insofar as he recognized that and was able to capitalize it and kind of take a, take a centrist but kind of progressive or offer an alternative vision of Spain to 1492, let's say, that even centrists could get behind. As the bulwark to, to Spanish fascism, especially because the leader of Ciudadanos and the leader of the popular party appeared on stage with the leader of Vox and are in government with Vox. Well, they appeared at a march. They, they appeared at a march. Uh, when Vox entered the parliament in Andalusia, they let Vox, you know, condition their government. And then in the campaign, uh, in both campaigns, actually, they, but especially in the April campaign for the, the general elections, they tried to out Vox Vox, especially the Partido Popular. And, and Vox kind of used the Catalan conflict as like an excuse to tell a bunch of gay and racist jokes, um, you know, or like anti-gay and, and racist jokes. But like the Pepe would try to kind of like prevent Vox from taking too many of their votes and, and try to like, you know, elbow them with complicity or whatever. And, you know, that that's that's had a, I, I would say, dramatic and traumatic effect on on Spanish politics because, yeah, it's but I agree with Magda that that, you know. What they what Vox has done is make visible something that was within the popular party. I mean, the but this is the popular party is a descendant, direct descendant of the Franco dictatorship. So that's not that shouldn't be shocking. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. And and you know of course, the popular party is disintegrating because of corruption. I mean this doesn't get said enough in all of the narratives. The, the people are leaving the popular party because uh, because of because of the Gurtel case that the major corruption scandal that that got Mariano Rajoy ousted. Um, and, you know, there was this, the people who wanted a more pure right-wing party went to Vox and the ones that wanted to go with like, I don't know, uh, coked up Wall Street bankers or something like that said, hey, Ciudadanos reminded me of that movie and went with that. The bad thing is that Partido Popular and, and uh, Ciudadanos have been very contaminated by Vox. They really copy the speech of, of Vox and they put in the agenda all these homophobic and misogynic uh, topics you were talking about, Carlos. That's the problem. I, I didn't. I think the left made a very bad work trying to stop this party because uh, we put it in the middle, especially some some media and some progressive or, or supposed progressive media, no, trying to make a spectacle with Vox, no, trying to really uh, to make make them uh, look like ridiculous and, and and all this they, they play the victims as they made in other countries in, in, in Europe but I agree with Carlos too we this fascism is more it has not to be with class it's not like uh, uh, Marine Le Pen uh, they, they don't speak for workers they they speak for Spaniards or uh, with this pride of of this spine that someone some people want to destroy you know i i didn't like this uh, how do we call it? this um, uh, superioridad moral uh, this moral moral superiority yeah. and i that's why the final meeting of box in madrid before the the election the general elections i went to this meeting with a guy with a friend of mine and we we tried that uh, um, nobody noticed that we were not very for box no <laughs> and we got it. So the, my my friend who is a German said uh, he went in Germany to see this alternative of Deutschland, and and he said, yeah, the trick we have to do is when they make, uh, yeah, okay, we just um, drink water. So we were drinking water like mad for not to make an applause. So how do you? Say? Yeah, no, not to. Not to yeah, not to applaud. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but it was very interesting to see these people because we have this this stereotype um, image in 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 yeah, and and they are not like this. Um, they were very transversal. I, I it's only in demonstrations in, in in for the independence or in the eighth of March uh, demonstrations I have seen so different people together, and they were really very very different. And they uh, what I was afraid of. It was that they were not 
aggressive or too euphoric. They were they knew they were not going to win, that they have to ex, uh, to wait because democracy is like this, that we have to wait for years and things like that. So they were not too too happy. But they used uh, very often a word that made me get some panic. It was insensatos. You all have no how do you call it? say Carlos? Insensatos, crazy, yeah. fool, you're a fool, no? Yeah. In the way that a man who uh, mistreats a woman says, please don't make me feel what I don't want to do. It was something like that. Now this left, this, without these foolish people uh, are going to force us to, to, yeah, to defend things in, in a way that it was really very, very, yeah, uh, very weird. In terms of like, they've portrayed themselves as being the sort of like persecuted white male Catholic yeah, minority who's being who's being abused by the the politically correct left mafia. Yeah, especially the messages against uh, all these women who are the feminazis, as they call us. No, oh, they, they they were the more uh, successful messages they they mm. they were sending no? against women and a bit about against Catalonia, but not too many. Eh? I was expecting it would be yeah. more. Spain uh, they talk. A lot about Spain, but not so much against Catalonia. That was something, yeah, it's strange for me too. Something that they are being very successful in doing is depicting themselves as a party of transgression. And and that's something that the alt-right does in general, is make themselves transgressive, which is something that some would argue that the left is, is kind of losing its monopoly on. And in this way, yeah, they definitely depict themselves as victims, as people that, oh, we've just never been able to say what we wanted to say. And actually, it was kind of funny because in the in the general elections, uh, Pablo Iglesias' uh, campaign, which is actually kind of popular despite the, the the votes that he got, he's he's now the second best rated politician in Spain, which is not true just months ago. But in his campaign, he he made it a point to keep saying, oh, "I'm going to I'm going to tell things like they are," you know, and use that kind of language to to tell us some hard truths, which is the same. You know, I, I think one of the things is that he saw that Vox was kind of doing that kind of thing, and and that th this this ability to to just to come off as saying whatever you want was part of their appeal. To finish up, I guess you know we've been talking about how maybe it's not a moment of total catastrophe for the left, but it's a difficult moment at best. Where do you see things heading? There's it seems to be a critical a, a new critical juncture for this politics that's emerged since the financial crisis and the indignados movement we seem to have reached some kind of critical juncture in how that that history is developing where do, where do you think it goes from here a lot of people are arguing that the the cycle of struggles that was inaugurated in 2011 is has been closed that spain's political system has returned to normal a new normal but a new normal that looks a lot like the old normal in new clothes. I don't know that that's true. I think things are, I don't think these things move in terms of cycles quite that way. Um, and I don't know where things are going, but I, I, I think there are enough problems, enough structural problems like high rent, uh, real estate speculation, the influence of finance, capital, racism, xenophobia, border regimes that impose severe inequalities um patriarchy and all of and and all of these very very deep structural issues uh that we are seeing mobilizations around um the house the renters unions that have emerged in uh barcelona and madrid and elsewhere i think have a you know they've emerged from a lot of the disillusionment that came out of this last electoral cycle or or that was translated in this last electoral cycle the massive women's marches and strikes of 8th of the 8th of march for the last 2 years really point to a big shift in Spain's very social structure and the mobilizations in Catalonia in favor of refugees um, and Spain's just position in general on on migration relative to the rest of Europe i mean there's definitely a lot of room for progressive, um, and and well, I would say for left wing politics to 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 make serious gains. So I I don't see this as any kind of catastrophe. I think there needs to be a lot more effort put into the movements to take 
back the public agenda because we've been talking about party politics for like four years now, minimum. And what made the new scenario in party politics possible was that for the previous years, it was the movement setting the agenda. And I think that we need to, we need to think seriously about doing that again. Otherwise we're going to have fringe racists transgressing the, the sort of the establishment narrative uh, while everybody's talking about what seats they want to occupy. Yeah, I agree. I think this this political cycle is, is yeah, it, it's over. And now I see all these climate demonstrations who are increasing all these young people striking. Uh, that's going to be stronger. And the feminist movement is, is also getting, I think, we will not forget these demonstrations for a while the only thing to feel a bit proud of, of spain was these demonstrations for uh, the, the women's demonstrations no? and they and this was more democratic even than the period we had this uh, 15 of may movement the indignados mm -hmm. movement that's gonna be for a long time the way the, the we will act and box for instance talks like like yeah that's the influence of of all these fascist uh, parties and all this but they they don't uh, they always say uh, they are movement, not a party. Nobody wants to be a party, I think, lately here, no? <laughs> so um, I think that's going to, yeah, things are going to change uh, in this, in this uh, yeah, I think in this way. Well, Carlos Toclos and Magda Bandera, muchísimas gracias. Gracias. Carlos Del Clos is a sociologist, a member of the Roar Magazine Editorial Collective, and an associate researcher at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs. Magda Bandera is the director of LaMarea.com and has worked for La Vanguardia, El Periódico, and Público. She specializes in politics, climate change, and gender. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine, as Marx once said after noting that all forms of the state have democracy for their truth, and for that reason are false to the extent that they are not democracy. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our managing editor is Thierry Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also take a moment to leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends, family, strangers about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help. Thank you.